So with that, if you're able, uh, please stand for the reading of the word. And as Kaylee is coming up, if you have any prayer uh, needs or requests after the service, there'll be someone at the prayer banner to pray with you and for you. I will be reading Acts 9, 1 through 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, if you're joining us for the first time or you've been vacationing over the summer and just joining us, we are in the middle of a series in the book of Acts called Be the Church. It's looking back at the early church on how they lived out their Christian faith so we might glean from them of how they lived it out so we can live out our faith today. You see, Jesus was crucified, he was buried, he rose from the grave and then spent 40 days with his disciples to prove to them and to show them that I, in fact, am the Messiah, that you as a Jewish worshiper have been expectant of, I am he, I am your God. And just before ascending back to heaven, Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter one, verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And how marvelous is it? 2,000 years later, here we sit gathered as a fulfillment of the gospel going to the end of the earth. But more amazing than that is it continues to spread all around the globe. Ryan, last week, he mentioned that the regular pattern of the church is to gather and then scatter. Like we're doing here on a Sunday, we gather for worship, we hear the word of God being shared, and then we go out into our everyday life, we scatter to be a faithful presence of Jesus. But in the early church, the disciples were being scattered due to the persecution that they were facing primarily at the hands of a man named Saul, who we were introduced to last week. He was the man responsible for stoning Stephen the deacon after Stephen boldly went into the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was in essence the, like the supreme court of the Jewish faith. And Stephen boldly told those 71 men that were in there, you all are responsible for killing the righteous one, for murdering the son of God. And as the story goes on, that was well received and so they applauded, no, it angered them. It was blasphemous. And so they decided to, to stone Stephen. 
And it picks up in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 58, going back to last week. It says this. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea. So we have the Acts 1-8 passage becoming a reality through persecution. And in this narrative, we see that Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr who followed the steps of Jesus on how we should view our enemies. Look back at verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. See, we should view our enemies with a heart of love and forgiveness. Because why? Well, remember, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, before he was about to take his last breaths, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, some of us struggle to comprehend how someone can be betrayed, falsely accused, beaten, mocked, and while dying a brutal death, say the words off of your lips, forgive them. Forgive them. Now you might say, you know, hey, Jesus was God, Dustin, like, duh. Well, may you be reminded that Jesus was also fully man. What about Stephen? Stephen wasn't God, but as scripture tells us, he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit. So when the men picked up the stones to stone him, while being pelted with boulders and rocks that were breaking his bones and crushing his body as they hit him in the head and the body, Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, said, Jesus, forgive them for their sin. You see, in this instance, Stephen forgave Saul and prayed for him because you do not know what God might do if you forgive and pray. And Stephen was obedient to model the way of Jesus, of love and forgiveness. Why? Well, do you remember what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, starting in verse 43? Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Jesus says to us, love your enemies and pray, pray for those who persecute you. You see, following Jesus is not about comfort, peace, and prosperity in this life. There will be people who might claim to be pastors that will pick up the word of God and they'll sell you that message. Follow Jesus and you will have power, prosperity, and peace, and all the things will just flow out of God, which is true to a degree. When we're in faith and obedient to Christ, we can experience in our soul 
peace, comfort, and prosperity in our spiritual life with Christ. But we will face persecution. How many of y'all have faced challenges in your life? Every single one of us would raise our hand. That is not the type of peace, comfort, and prosperity that Jesus is pointing toward us towards. Because in John 15, he told his disciples this and us, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But, be, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world what? Hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So we as disciples, those of us who follow Jesus, are servants of Christ. If our master was mocked, beaten, betrayed, pierced, and hung on a cross, and Jesus tells us that we will be persecuted because of him, we should be expectant of that. February 15th, 2015, how many of you remember seeing these images or video being displayed across all the news channels around the world? This is a picture of 21 Coptic Egyptian Christians, poor farmer migrants who were working in Libya. And an ISIS cell in the area rounded them up and beat them and brutalized them for three weeks. These men had to do one thing. They had to disown Jesus and claim Allah as their God. But instead, these men, for weeks and weeks, they prayed together, they sang together as they were beaten and brutalized. And when ISIS-Cell realized that they weren't gonna break these men, they marched them across the seashore in Libya, wearing what? Orange jumpsuits. I mean, a perfect image of Christian men being prisoners for Christ. And the ISIS leader was spewing all kinds of hatred stuff about the Christian faith. And he says, the people of the cross, the followers of the hostile Egyptian, and just continued on and on for a couple minutes. And then when he was done, the 21 men behind the Coptic Christians shoved them down into the sand. And they faced ultimately what they were told what would happen if they did not renounce Christ and they were brutally murdered. If that wasn't shocking enough, in the days and weeks to follow, interviews of the spouses and family members came out, and I remember watching them thinking, is this even real? Because the spouses and the family members of these men, when you think that they would respond with vengeance, hatred, and just disgust for what happened, they responded with almost one voice. And in essence, in all different ways, they in essence said, we are proud of our husbands as Christian martyrs. We forgive the men who did this. And we pray for the men that did this, that they may come to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How would you have responded 
if that was your family member or spouse. For many brothers and sisters around the world, this is a norm, the persecution that they face. For those of us in the U.S., we are pretty blessed that we don't face persecution like that yet. But if someone attacked you, slandered you, wounded you physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually, what did it do to your soul? How did you respond? Did you lean towards vengeance where you made it and wanted to make them pay for it? Or did you lean towards forgiveness, saying, Father, forgive them? I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes the sting, the hurt, the wound can be so deep that all we can see is vengeance in our eyes and take it into our own hands while turning our back on God's call for us to forgive. You see, at the root of forgiveness is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ, that through his life, death, and resurrection, we are forgiven of our wretchedness and our sins and made righteous and just in the eyes of God. God sacrificed his only son, Jesus Christ, so that we would be forgiven. And so how absurd is it for those of us who claim to follow Jesus, fully receiving his grace and forgiveness through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, being found blameless and covered by the grace of God, then have the audacity to look at God and say, God, I can't forgive them. Do you know what they did to me? Do you know how they hurt me, how they wounded me? Do you know how much money they frauded me out of? God, do you know how that person abused me? There's no way I can forgive them. Now, just to be clear, if what happened to you makes it unsafe to interact with someone, did you know that you can forgive them in your heart, heart, mind, and soul through prayer? You see, forgiveness is canceling a debt, removing it from our ledger, not theirs, and if both forgive each other, that's reconciliation, which is the ultimate goal that God wants to see in circumstances like this. But we can forgive others by talking, by praying to God about who you need to forgive if it is unsafe to go directly to them. How we know this? Because Jesus taught it. In Mark eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive Forgive if you have anything against anyone. If you have anything against anyone, forgive. That covers everything, right? Why? So that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. When we walk around with unforgiveness, bitterness, frustration, anger, madness at someone else, who rightly so might have wronged us, Jesus commands us to forgive. Because if we have that heart posture, it creates a block with our relationship with God. Forgive if you have anything against anyone. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says it this way. 
Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Isn't that true? Friends, the big takeaway for this morning is forgiven people must be forgiving people. Forgiven people, not should be, but must be forgiven, forgiving people. Forgiven people must be forgiving people. Now, I'll unpack that and draw out the truth and essence of forgiveness because as we enter into Acts chapter 9 and meet this man Saul, we are going to see Jesus press upon his forgiveness in an unprecedented, miraculous way onto Saul, who after this interaction with Jesus will become known as the Apostle Paul, which many of us know him by. You see, Paul will go on to write over half of the New Testament, become one of the greatest evangelists in the Christian faith, plant numerous churches throughout the Mediterranean Sea, and raise up hundreds of leaders in the early church. But yet, how did Saul begin? He began as a murderous, foaming-at-the-mouth, vengeance-oriented, religious Pharisee that wanted nothing more than to honor Yahweh by stamping out this new faith, this new way, with a man at the head called Jesus of Nazareth. And so, that's where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, which says, But Saul... Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. The fact that Paul or Saul had access to the high priest, which is not the case for every Israelite, shows that he had some kind of pedigree. He, there was something about Saul that gave him direct access to the high priest, who again was the head of that Jewish court. I mean, this is in a, the Catholic church sense. This is someone having direct access to the Pope, which not everybody has. And so what gives Saul that direct access? It's his religious pedigree. It's his religious fervor to honor Yahweh, to honor the Lord. And Saul, or Paul, actually writes about this later in Philippians chapter 3, and he says this about himself, that he was circumcised on the eighth day, which shows that his parents were obedient to the faith. He was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, which makes him a Hebrew of Hebrews. So I'm just not any ordinary Israelite. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I have the direct lineage, which makes me a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of how he lived out the hundreds of Levitical law in his everyday practice of his faith as a Jewish man, a Pharisee. He made sure every T was crossed and every I was dotted in living up to that law. As to zeal, well, it's on full display. I was a persecutor. Saul was a persecutor of the church. And to righteousness under the law, Saul was blameless. Saul was blameless. You see, he was a very religious man. He knew the Torah, the Jewish law, inside and out, could quote it, recite it, live it out. And he was blameless. And he wanted nothing more than to honor Yahweh to honor God Almighty by stamping out this new way, this new group called the way, these followers of Jesus Christ who claimed to be God in the flesh and how blasphemous that was. 
And Saul was going to take it upon himself with a blessing by the high priest to stamp out this new movement. And so Saul, he gets his letter from the high priest as it continues in verse 2. It says, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You see, we must be reminded of what Jesus said in John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in Saul's mind, he's thinking, that's blasphemous. The only mediator between us as Jews and God is the high priest. And how dare you put yourself in that position? And so by being blessed by the high priest, he has these letters to go find people in Damascus, which was about 130 miles north of Jerusalem. He was going to go hunt them down, kick in doors, drag out men and women and shackle them up and take them back down to Jerusalem. Why? To treat them the same way that he had just treated Stephen. Not just men, but women too. So as Paul, or Saul, as he is going up the road to Damascus, verse 3, it says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting when Jesus repeats Saul's name, Saul, Saul, it shows and displays how God intimately knows and interacts with those he claims as his and will use them to do great things. You want to find fun Bible study? Go look throughout the Bible and find the instances when God shows up to people and repeats their names. It reminds me of Jesus again hanging on the cross He's bearing all the weight of our sin and he's suffering before he takes his last breath. What does Jesus cry out? My God, my God. Here we have the second person of the Trinity crying out to the Father. Why have you forsaken me? As he's experiencing momentarily the separation from the Father as he bears the weight of our sin upon our shoulders. And now here's Jesus showing up to Saul, the persecutor of the early church, and saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You have to imagine that moment, every preconceived notion and idea and belief that Saul had about Jesus was immediately challenged in this instance. Because Saul believed, I crushed that man, Jesus, me and the Jews. He is buried, dead, gone, no more. And he's got this letter from the high priest and he's marching down the road to Damascus and Jesus shows up to him and challenges every preconceived idea that Saul had about Jesus. The other thing out of this passage is who was Saul persecuting? The disciples. Not Jesus himself, but what does Jesus do? He tells Saul... Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
the violence that you're putting against my people, it's actually you're putting it on me. These are my people. And so when we're in Christ, when we believe in Jesus, when we're part of the body, when persecution happens to us, it actually is happening to Jesus. And we need to be reminded of this as we face challenges and struggles and possibly persecution in our life. Jesus is there with us in the middle of it. It's not always going to be miraculous. Jesus is actually physically there. But this passage and others throughout scripture, we need to be reminded that Jesus, our great high priest, suffered on the cross, fully God, fully man. So when we suffer, when we face challenges, when we face persecution, Jesus is there with us. As Jesus continues in verse 6, he says, but rise, as he's talking to Saul, who's now, uh, he says, but rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now imagine where Saul is at emotionally in this instance, in this moment. A man who is strong, driven, devoted, religious, self-righteous, having followers so committed to him that they are willing to murder on his behalf, is now completely blind. He doesn't know if he'll ever see again. What Saul is experiencing physically is a reflection of his soul spiritually. Saul has been blind to Jesus as Lord. For three days, this strong man is made weak. This dangerous, powerful man is made powerless. Now, some look at this story in Acts chapter 9 as Saul being converted to Christianity. But really, this story is about God's radical forgiveness of a murderer who Jesus calls upon to become the chosen instrument that will take the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles, the people that the Jews called dogs and that they would never interact with. Imagine this religious Pharisee hated the Gentiles. And Jesus shows up, he's like, hey, Saul, you're now going to be my chosen instrument to go share the gospel with them. Friends, this is the same thing that Jesus does to us when he grabs a hold of us, when he changes our heart to be about him. We become the chosen instrument that is sent to go share the gospel, the good news to everybody around us. You see, Paul, he's shifting from being the persecutor to the preacher, to the one causing suffering to the sufferer. And as a Jew, Saul did not find a new God to worship in this instance, but he discovered that he was in rebellion against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who he worshiped all his life. But he was in rebellion because he would not believe and he refused to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. 
Jesus as the Messiah that they were expectant of for thousands of years. We are so foolish to think if we're any different than Saul. We have all been in rebellion of God and need to get off of our throne and confess Jesus as Lord, repent of our sin, the sin that causes a blockade between our relationship with God the Father, the sin that Jesus took upon the cross and we're forgiven of and we're found righteous in the eyes of God. We need to repent. We need to confess Jesus as Lord. Because why? As I said a minute ago, each and every one of us become the chosen instrument that God wants to use to be the very presence of Jesus to those that he's placed us around. And we should not neglect that high calling in our life. As the story continues in the rest of Acts chapter 9, I encourage you to go and read it. There, God or Jesus calls upon a disciple named Ananias and tells him, hey, I need you to go meet uh, this guy Saul and you're going to pray for him. You're going to give him his eyesight back and you're going to welcome in him as a brother of Christ. And Ananias, his response is like, uh, hey, wait, but Lord, um, that guy was persecuting. And Jesus is like, yep, you're going to go. And Ananias is obedient and does that, welcomes Saul, who becomes Paul, into the body of Christ. Well, Saul goes on to become the Apostle Paul, which many of us know him as, and he is truly transformed by Jesus and went on to evangelize the Mediterranean Sea area, planting churches, raising up hundreds of leaders, and wrote half of the New Testament. And like Stephen, Paul's heart and life was transformed to be an image bearer of Jesus. How do we know this? because of his writings. Later in life, when he penned and wrote the book of Romans, he says this in chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Forgiven people must be forgiving people. Forgiven people must be forgiving people. So as we get close to wrapping up, I want to unpack these four points of why should we forgive? So if we should forgive, why should we? Number one, God forgave us first. I've covered a lot of this in the previous passages and whatnot, but it reminds me of Romans 5.8, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. God forgave us through his son, Jesus Christ. Number two, if you are forgiven, you need to be forgiving. In Matthew 18, Jesus is trying to teach his disciples on how to resolve conflict between one another, which how many of you are professionals at resolving conflict? 
All right, see none. Right there with you. Jesus gave us scriptures and teachings on how we ought to try to live this out. And Peter being the wise guy, you know, he's probably talking to the disciples and he's like, man, if we're wronged by a brother or sister, you know, maybe we should forgive them once or twice, but you know, I'm gonna go ask Jesus. And so verse, Matthew 18, verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus responds with no, but with 77 times you should forgive your brother or sister. You know, so often when we find ourselves in situations of needing to ask for forgiveness or to forgive, we usually take our one step and we go, I did my part, now it's their turn. This should convict us of Jesus says, no, don't take one step, don't take seven steps, you go until 77. You keep going and try to seek out reconciliation with your brother or sister in Christ. Does it always happen? No, it doesn't. But like Mark eleven twenty five 25 tells us and reminds us that if we're in that instance and we have unforgiveness, bitterness, frustration, we're mad about something, the first step that we can do is before God we can pray. We can talk to God and say, God, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. Because if we have unforgiveness towards anyone or anything, we should forgive. Because if we don't, it creates a blockade for our relationship with God. I think I'm on point number four. No. Three, there we go. I was already talking about my third point. Point number three, it builds your relationship with God. Just covered that. But Matthew 5, 23, 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. God wants us to be reconciled to our brothers and sisters in Christ. What Jesus is saying in this instance, when you come to gather and worship me, if you've got unforgiveness, bitterness, frustration, whatever that is, and you're, oh God, I praise you. Oh God, you're so glorious. I love you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But in our heart, if we've got unforgiveness, Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? Leave your stuff at the altar. Go forgive. Try to go reconcile. And then come back and worship me. Because a lot of us walk in here, we come in here every week carrying the burdens of the world, the challenges of the relationships that God has us around, the sadness and sorrow of our children who may be going wayward and no longer worship Jesus as Lord. Whatever it is, Jesus wants us to leave those things at the cross, at the altar, and to go seek forgiveness and to reconcile. So when we come before God and worship him and praise him in all of our brokenness, yes, he accepts that. But he wants our horizontal relationships to be one. And that's my last point, number four, it maintains unity in the church. You see, the, Paul planted a church in the city of Corinth, which was in a way, it was kind of like the San Francisco or New York, right? powerhouses of finances, relationships, anything goes in these city centers. And Paul planted a church there, and the early followers are really struggling of how do we live out this Christian faith 
in this cultural context where everything goes. And so he's working through that in his letters that he sends to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And the church in 1 Corinthians is so focused they're focused on someone that has their sexual immorality that's in the church and they're hyper-focused on this person. And how does Paul start his letter? He calls out the bigger issue that exists within the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he points out the divisions that are in the church. And he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. You need to be one. The Corinthian church, people were claiming, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas. They were all in factions. And so Paul calls out the bigger issue within the church that there were divisions in the church. Why is this important? Because as a church, as Christ Community Church, we exist to make fully committed followers of Jesus Christ through three core values of love, acceptance, help me out here, forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of our core values. And as the interim pastor, over the past year, there's been some hard decisions that have had to been made, either by myself or by our session, who leads this church. And these decisions have created unforgiveness, challenges, frustration, anger, people being mad. What's at the root of all that? Our church has experienced an absurd amount of relational loss in such a short period of time through staff changes, pastoral changes, through people moving out of the state of California, an unprecedented amount of relational loss is going on here at Christ Community Church, which has led to a lot of frustration a lot of anger and challenging times. And as I was preparing for this message, I just kind of had to laugh of like, God, this is, this is a timely message, not for the church, but for my own soul. Because we as pastors and leaders, if we are not living out what Jesus calls us to be forgiving, to seek forgiveness, to go the 77 times, who are we to expect that and place that upon our congregation and all of you? That's what we have been trying to live out as pastors and our session, our elders as a church, to really lean into forgiveness. Why is this so important? Because if we as a church have a high value of forgiveness, and it's kind of a little choppy right now, we are ruining our witness to the city. We are ruining our witness to the people that do not know Jesus around us. How are we ruining it? Because in everyday conversations, we begrudgingly talk about our church or people that are a part of it and this person that and that person this. And they got to be standing there going, 
Why in the world would I ever want to be a part of that? If your Lord, this Jesus guy, tells you to forgive, but it sounds like you got a lot of bitterness and forgiveness in your heart, why would I want to join that? We have to do better together. We have to forgive. We have to forgive. Because forgiven people must be forgiving people. Can we get better at this? Can we do it together? Can we truly live out love, acceptance, and forgiveness? Now, I know some of you are sitting there like, well, I don't, you know, things are going great here in the church. We all sit here today with someone in our life that we have unforgiveness with. And may the Holy Spirit press upon each and every one of us that we would be nudged to go and forgive, forgive, forgive. Pray with me. Father God, when we open up your word, so many times these hard truths can come to the surface. Truths that challenge us on how we view our relationship with you. And what we might see as small things of having unforgiveness towards anything or anyone, that it actually creates a blockade with you, Father. So Holy Spirit, I pray for each and every one of us that you would press upon our minds the person, the situation, the wound, the scar that has created unforgiveness. Father, that we may walk alongside with you, knowing that you are fully there in our struggle and our challenge, that you would walk along us and shepherd us in seeking forgiveness. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the ultimate sacrifice that you paid on the cross. And you modeled the way as you're dying to say, Father, forgive them. So may we be like you, Christ. May we follow the steps of Stephen and may we follow the steps of Paul. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.